Welcome to the Governance Podcast from the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society. Uh, my name is Mark Pennington and I'm the Director of the Centre. Today our guest is Professor Franz Birkhow, the Executive Dean of Social Science and Public Policy here at King's College London, where he's also Professor of Environment, Society and Climate in the Department of Geography. Franz is a world-leading expert on science, policy and climate change, and today he's going to be discussing with us his new book, Innovating Climate Governance, Moving Beyond Experiments. This is an edited collection published by Cambridge University Press. Franz, it's great to have you with us today here at the Centre. Um, I wonder whether you could start us off by saying a little bit about your motivation for putting this book together. Yeah, so um, I've been interested in um, large-scale socio-technical change for a long time and um, also trying to understand the role of policy in that. And um, in that work that I've been doing, that tradition of work, the question of the socio-technical niche, so where does uh, novelty emerge, is a central question. Uh, and a lot of the work that I've done has been around uh, experiments, so new configurations of business, civil society, government coming together, often in small, quite protected spaces in cities or in, in, uh, in rural areas, to develop radical new technologies, and the, um, uh, which might be to do with sustainable uh, development objectives like uh, uh, electric vehicles or renewable power. Or often these things emerged in the 1960s and 70s with small groups of enthusiasts, and the question is really theorising that and trying to understand that. And this book is really an attempt to transfer some of that thinking, which has a particular kind of intellectual heritage, um, to trying to understand uh, the emergence of experimentalism in climate governance, uh, and the context for that really is the overturning, I suppose, of international climate governance after the failure of the Copenhagen, uh, the large Copenhagen meeting in 2009. Broadly what happened there was that a dominant perspective which was that you would have global coordination of national emissions reductions targets, that those would be, be codified in international law and then there would be some kind of compliance regime around that and the creation of global markets, emissions trading and so on. That approach to achieving uh, climate goals failed and uh, out of the wreckage really emerged a much more bottom-up, uh, voluntaristic, um, what was called pledge and review system, um, which became the basis for the uh, the new Paris Agreement in 2015. And so you have a context in climate governance where you're beginning to depend much more on this bottom-up, less coordinated set of experimental work going on in governance, trying to incentivize, trying to create new configurations of actors, business, consumers, cities. Um, and really the question is, how does that work and given the observation, the empirical observation, that there are now uh, uh, thousands, uh, uh, maybe hundreds of thousands, of climate governance experiments happening at the local level all around the world, what do they really add up to? 
and how can we conceptualize and think about a broader, more systemic, more transformative effect of these many, many uh, uncoordinated uh, but, but very promising and interesting initiatives which are happening uh, on the ground. So that was my, that was the flow of thinking really. And so the book seeks to do a reconciliation and a, a dialogue, I suppose, between the field that I come from, which is um, broadly innovation studies and uh, studies of policy and governance and trying to see whether this experimental turn, which you might uh, detect, whether the way these two areas are talking about experiments have anything to say to each other, um, given also, of course, that many of the governance solutions will depend on technical solutions and, and their, de their, their development and, and, and diffusion. Okay, that's great. Um, perhaps we could spend a little bit of time talking about what you mean by the term experimentalism. So the notion of experimentalism plays a central role in the book. When many people think about experiments, they often think of um, scientific laboratory-style processes in which there are something close to controlled conditions. Can you tell us how the type of experimentalism that's involved in climate governance differs from that kind of scientific type process and why the difference is significant for climate change? So I think, of course, um, classically in the production of knowledge uh, in, uh, in a scientific um, uh, uh, context, uh, we have controlled conditions and we usually... You know, we're seeking to test one of the factors to vary them to um, develop a, a, a you know understand whether there's a causal relationship between a change in a certain factor and an outcome, uh, and then we can correlate and, and and that helps us understand the effect between cause and effect. In um, these kinds of cases where you're dealing with policy instruments, um, complex configurations of actors. Um, we don't have the same kind of control over conditions. These are usually, as it were, real-life experiments. Um, but um, in the sense that what we're having here uh, uh, is the um, development of often new configurations of social actors, often um, mixed kinds of coalitions involving government, uh, business, neighbourhood civil societies, you know, other other actors um, uh, coming together for the first time, often in a quite a local initiative, um, some often funded in some way by business or government, um, with the uh, 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 aim of learning, of creating new knowledge, of creating new uh, networks, of new, of creating something that works in terms of a new policy or a new incentive structure or a new institutional configuration. It has an experimental character. And I think in the book we argue that there are a number of metaphors uh, uh, of experimentation um, which are lying in the background often of this idea of a more experimentalist approach to governance. Um, uh, and we talk about, you know, experimentation as method, you know, seeking to test a hypothesis or um, as, as a testing process, the idea of a pilot, for instance, you're, you're seeking to select designs that work 
or the idea of experiments as, as, as aiming to uh, generate learning by doing. So you, you know, not just something in theory, but you try something on the ground. Uh, or the idea of experiments of generating radical novelty. You know, you might have a really wacky idea about um, how to get people to um, start cycling more, for instance, in a city. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, how do you do that? And, and how do you create that? Uh, uh, which obviously has been achieved in, in places. London is, is a great example of uh, a city where there really wasn't very much cycling. And part of the aim uh, of promoting cycling uh, was, of course, um, emissions reduction. Uh, but the way you had to do that was to break through all sorts of social and cultural norms um, and invest in infrastructure to make it safe and so on. So there are a number of different metaphors we, we have um, uh, that uh, play in the background, I think, when you're thinking of this idea of experimentation and governance. Now, there is a small literature on experimentation and governance. There's this uh, work by um, Zeitin and Sabel, I think, which is characterizing EU governance as experimental. And their argument is broadly that what the EU does, it says it, it, it sets framework conditions and targets. Then it, um, it has the implementation of the policy at the national level. And there's quite a lot of discretion there about how countries do it. And then there's review and peer oversight. Uh, and the, uh, their argument is that that has an experimental quality to it, because once uh, as you're developing the policy, you're still pretty open about the way it will be implemented or precisely what the impacts will be uh, in different places. So I think there's something, you know, deeper going on, which is an interesting set of questions which um, researchers in policy and governance need to be looking at. Perhaps we could follow up on that a little bit. So um, people tend to contrast, on the one hand, this kind of top-down approach where <clears throat> experiments are organised from the centre with a more polycentric or bottom-up kind of approach. Can you talk about, and perhaps the EU example is one there, mm. where it's possible perhaps to combine these two approaches, a kind of a top-down element combined with a more bottom-up or polycentric type mechanism? Well, I think, as I said, that many of these um, climate governance experiments do um, begin with government programmes. So they are government um, demonstration programs or pilot programs. They depend on government funding and the legitimacy that comes through those. They often also depend on um, local governments or, or local city governments creating the space for the, for the experiment to happen. Uh, usually these experiments, because, I mean, you know, an exist, uh, another example in, in London, for instance, would be um, all those, um, you know, novel um, bus systems that you're seeing, I mean, the hydrogen buses, for instance. In order for that, which, and, and, and these hydrogen bus programs were, were part of a, originally part of a European program, a large European program in different cities, uh, creating funding, linking to technology providers, um, uh, you know, funding the infrastructure that was needed, the hydrogen buses, for instance, you will require an infrastructure for. But clearly the city government, the planners were, were part of making that possible. Uh, politicians needed to see this as 
uh, as advantageous, as interesting for them, possibly because of future uh, 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 job creation, the development of new industrial sectors, uh, the sort of city marketing idea, uh, all sorts of reasons why local politics might be interested in these kinds of schemes. And clearly they needed to become embedded in, in a local landscape in order to, to happen. And then the local learning would happen, so you'd have the development of supply chains, uh, users would become familiar with these kinds of technologies, passengers might choose certain kinds of more sustainable transport, um, and so on. So I think often these programs uh, are state sponsored in, in all sorts of ways. But of course, there are many other examples of just much more grassroots and local local initiatives. But again, often these do require some kind of input from the state. So I'll give you an example of some work that a PhD student of mine is doing, Irene Hawkinson here, which is about a big program of urban gardening, which was sponsored around the London Olympics. It was called Capital Growth. And the aim of the mayor at that time, Boris Johnson, was to sponsor uh, 2012 urban gardens and the idea was to create new uh, uh, green spaces uh, and so on and many of these gardens did emerge but as a result of neighborhood action and then they they drew on um, uh, uh, grants and so on that were available from the center but they had a much more bottom-up um, character to them and they, they have you know a whole variety of different expressions then in the urban landscape and the kinds of people who are involved and and what was what was developing there in terms of knowledge and the way the way people were were doing urban ag agriculture or creating green spaces for 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 for, for, for kids to play in or or, or you know, to to maintain urban biodiversity. So there were there were a whole variety of reasons why people got involved in this. Um, so I think often these things require both state involvement and, uh, but they definitely, and that's the point about these experiments and the idea of the experimental turn. And, and I think why these things have become so important in international climate governance is that they do pick up on and require the energy and entrepreneurship and vision and drive of real social actors on the ground. I mean, the reason why international climate policy in its old guise failed was because it was seen as statist and 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 you know too constraining whereas this is aiming really to unleash a set of creative and entrepreneurial uh, energies at the ground level um, in order to generate new socio-technical configurations new ways of doing things which will lead to eventually more sustainable outcomes and, and the conviction that that is actually the only way you can really generate the sort of massive uh, systemic innovation that's required requires actually the incentives and the motivations of people at the, at the, at the bottom, at the, at, the, at the grassroots. Can we talk a bit more about perhaps some of the motivations behind this kind of experimentation? So when we're talking about any level of governance that's below the international level, the global level, the level that you say where there has been failure in actually driving the climate change agenda forward. When we've got actors at the lower level, why is it that they are um, actually engaged in this kind of experimentation? So we usually have the view that people won't take action on climate change 
precisely because it's a sort of global public goods problem or global yeah. collective action problem that everybody's going to free ride. Um, it sounds as though many of the motivations behind these more localized experiments are driven by the idea that people can actually see a material benefit to their own quality of life mm. from these various experiments taking mm. place. And there is an argument I've heard from some people, I think actually Alan Rostrum made this argument, that sometimes people can focus too much on the global level. Mm. The more you emphasize the global dimension, the more helpless people feel in yeah. the sense that they can't really impact the overall problem. Whereas if you emphasize the local benefits that can be mm. derived from actually changing the way things are done, mm. perhaps not even talking about climate change as such, yeah. you might, as an unintended consequence, have beneficial climate change effects. Uh, does that sort of gel with what, with, what, um, with what comes out of this book? I think that's right. I, th I think um, the problem with the climate debate and climate governance up until 2009 was it was all global it was all about global coordination it was high politics and so on and you lost people I think it's it's true of course that many of the motivations that people might have at the local level for pursuing these kinds of initiatives is because they see co what we call co-benefits so, so benefits for themselves so uh, you know <clears throat> a city government might see that uh, you know there are there are employment opportunities or investment opportunities um, uh, and uh, you know, local local bus travellers or local citizens might see that there are air quality benefits, for instance, in having uh, you know, hydrogen buses. Uh, and certainly, in many cities, that is a huge political issue. Of course, um, the local gardening example is 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 one where people want to see more green space in an increasingly you know, difficult and stressful uh, urban urban environment, uh, safe spaces for people to be and for children to be and, and, and so on, and also to produce, you know, contact as well. There's a sort of neighbourhood formation, this is the idea of the creation of social capital around these kinds of initiatives, I think, which is important. But I think it's also a mistake to say that people are only motivated by their own local and personal uh, 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 interests. I think people do get involved in these kinds of programs precisely because they can become connected with a global issue which matters to them and often i believe and this is one of the interesting um, ex examples of a sort of transnational notion of experimentalism um, is the idea that when you have a, 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 a an urban gardening program uh, initiatives in, in london it will often be the case that, of course, they're talking to other initiatives in London, but actually it ends up, it turns out, they're, they're, they're connecting with people in Los Angeles and Detroit mm -hmm. and Calcutta. So there's a sort of new globalism, which around um, the connectivity, the knowledge flows, the resource flows, the flows of inspiration as well, of creativity, uh, of people maybe even. So uh, which is which is happening at the global level. So there's a different notion of the way coordination is happening, which is really to do with these much more organic links that people then begin to to create. Yeah. So how do these networks actually get off the ground? I mean, how is it are people using social media? What what is the mechanism by which what look like on the face of it potentially quite disparate, um, fragmented experiments actually start to sort of snowball and get connected? 
uh, to each other. Well, sometimes it's through um, you know city networks. So around climate, you've got the C40, you've got a whole range of different uh, uh, global associations of cities who are working on, uh, on on climate issues together. But you would also have um, you know people who are working on urban agriculture. Uh, who then become connected with each other, uh, begin to inform each other, are connected uh, through social media, simple things like Facebook pages and so on. But then more formal associations also uh, emerge uh, uh, in specific sectors, which are feeding ideas and, uh, you know, also, as I say, resources, connecting up with technology providers. You know, they might be global companies uh, or local companies who are interested in, in becoming part of this, of providing solutions uh, and they will then want to you know develop also new global markets in this in through through these kinds of networks so there are all sorts of ways in which this texture of networks then begins to um, configure link together quite local initiatives without requiring the state and it's mm -hmm. not necessarily a, mm -hmm. a state run or internationally coordinated or uh, through a treaty mediated. No, these are these are all sorts of very interesting networks which are emerging all the time through entrepreneurs and initiators at the local level connecting up uh, uh, globally. And that's very inspiring for people, I think, and interesting to learn what what is the, what, what are they doing in Berlin, you know, and and, mm -hmm. and, and can we learn from what they're doing? Uh, yeah. yeah. You do recognise in the book that um, the idea of experimentalism is a non-neutral term and I think you could say the same actually about the idea of the notion of sort of polycentric or bottom-up approaches so yeah. there are some people who will be concerned that to focus on an experimental approach the complexities the uncertainties that are associated with climate change can act as a kind of excuse um, for a lack of coordinated action at the global yeah. scale Others would argue that coordinated global action is too slow and cumbersome. Is there a way of actually reconciling these sorts of views? Um, or is it just a tension that we permanently have to negotiate, in a sense? Well, I agree. And I think uh, a lot of the academic research on, on these kinds of initiatives, on these kinds of experiments, has very much focused on individual cases. It's been sort of comparative case um, analysis, um, you know, looking at the factors or you know that lead to their creation and and their, whether they can be sustained and so on. And I think part of this book is trying to move beyond that. This is this idea of beyond experiments to try and understand what are actually the the outputs and outcomes of these kinds of experiments. And how can we begin to conceptualize more these broader impacts, which is another way of coming at this question of coordination, um, to say that the coordination need not be something that is explicitly state-led or codified through international agreements. But nevertheless, uh, if we now say that this more experimental action in governance and in the development of new technologies and so on is fundamental, which I think is probably true. Um, how should we begin to think about, um, you know, the accumulation of knowledge, the knitting together, the broader sort of systemic and transformative effects that these kinds of um, uh, uh, experiments may have? And as I say, it is it is always going to be um, 
an interaction between the enabling uh, resources and, uh, and the development of new institutional and regulatory systems and legitimacy that the state can give, as well as the, the entrepreneurship and, and, and energy uh, and novelty that uh, emerges from, from the ground up. So in order to conceptualize these things, I think we've tried to get away from the way in which um, the literature typically talks about these things, which is simply to talk about something called scaling up. Mm. It just says, you know, experiments become become successful as they become bigger. That is either in 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 size, in, in value, in the number of people who are doing it, or in the, the, the spatial extent of of the experiment. Maybe something that's been tried in a neighborhood then gets scaled up to the city and then it becomes scaled up to the region and then it may become a national program. I think that's sort of, it doesn't really describe a, a process, it's just a, a description of something. And I think therefore we've tried to think about different ways and that's part of what the book is trying to open out is how should we start thinking about these things. And, and so we develop concepts of replication, this idea that you know that the, the models developed in different places are replic you know replicated mm. uh, in many places often through these transnational uh, networks for instance the idea that there are ideas and models and blueprints that become are circulated and that idea that through circulation you things themselves are are, are evolved and fitted to different uh, local uh, systems or a process of institutionalization where you develop um new uh, new practices new norms new rules because don't forget a lot of these kinds of things are not just about um the policy or about the technology they very much have to do with the way in which um, users of a transport system or an electricity system or a water system or a waste system how they're behaving and whether cultural norms have shifted away from a default which is you know, often the thing that, that gets in the way of change. Can you get people actually to start doing things radically? I mean, for instance, um, can you get people who live in cities not to buy cars anymore? Why would you own a car? Uh, there are all these new schemes where you can have car shares and with an app, it's easy. I, I don't own a car anymore. And actually, I think I have a better quality of life and certainly I don't have all the anxieties and costs associated with owning a vehicle and parking it kinds of things if you start but but getting that idea as a sort of dominant hegemonic idea is incredibly difficult but it is actually a, but it and it requires all these many mm. actors and individuals to somehow shift their own norms um, so that process that whole process of institutionalization which is what we're getting to there is also part of what what this is about and that's something clearly that policies alone cannot do it requires models and examples and and you know all the the experience the practical experience of new ways of doing things in order to get wider social change which is what we're looking for here but do you see a, a tension there so on the one hand there is an emphasis on the idea of you have these often quite radical experiments um, which perhaps wouldn't take place if they were conducted globally, yeah. taking place outside of conventional structures. But then you have the idea that they might ripple out yeah. 
so that a broader number of actors adopt them. But at the same time, you're not saying that necessarily it's appropriate for everything to ripple out because what may be appropriate to one circumstance or one context might not be appropriate elsewhere. So there seems to be, on the one hand, an emphasis on things rippling out, but also at the same time the notion that you don't necessarily want one particular experiment that's proved successful in one area to be replicated everywhere else. I think that that's one of the, the differences. So there are two, two aspects to that. One is there's a chapter in the book which talks about the pilot paradox, which is simply this, that, that the conditions that allow pilots to happen, that is all the protection and the special circumstances that you create in order for a pilot to happen, is precisely also what gets in the way of their broader diffusion, because it's precisely the specialness of the, you know, the, the, the subsidies you're given or the, the regulatory relief that you're giving or whatever that actually gets in the way of their broader, broader diffusion. That's one thing. I think the other is that once you do start to translate um, learning or actor configurations or incentives um, uh, or you know new technologies, new ways of doing things to new places they clearly need to be fitted in some way to the new reality and and what happens in you know if you move the example of a you know something that worked in london to i don't know to lagos or something you would you would come into a completely different uh, technological economic cultural institutional context uh, and you'd need to do quite a lot of adaptation of that idea in order to make it work there and, and become embedded which is why we talk about this process of embedding and in the process you would have all sorts of processes of reconfiguration going on reconfiguration of policies reconfiguration of infrastructures reconfiguration of norms of of consumer practices of the and and all of that is is difficult and ramifies on each other if you make a technical change that requires something of the consumer and so on and and those processes are highly complex they're systemic and therefore there's something emergent about them you can't predict precisely where they'll end up um uh, and and that again i think argues for and and this is one of the other andrew carbonan has an interesting very short chapter in the book which is talking about a sort of permanent experiment you know the idea that because these because these changes are so transformative and deep-seated, I mean, our, if we're going to go to zero carbon emissions within 30 or 40 years, which is kind of what we want to do, the changes that need to happen are so complex and so connected with each other, there's no way you could plan that. There's no way in which there is a blueprint to say, look, for any place, we know what that will be. And therefore, you need a sort of you know, a permanent experiment going on there's, there's that experimentalist ethic that view of always being open to the next stage of change is going to be and the complex reconfigurations that require are required in order to achieve that is just part of what governance is now it's not about just writing the policy and implementing no it's being continually learning moving to the next stage reviewing adjusting uh, getting getting local energy and entrepreneurs to be part of it and uh, that's I think the only kind of reasonable way in which in such a complex um, many layered highly com- you know um, uh, connected and, 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 and totally embedded process how, how, how does that actually un- unfold and how does change emerge within such a system
What sort of evidence have you got in the book um, and what perhaps other evidence is emerging that these experiments are being embedded, that they are starting to have this kind of transformative effect? So, you know, we started the conversation by you saying that the, the global uh, approach, sort of the Paris Accords, etc., has, yeah. has failed. Um, what evidence have we got that we are starting to see these transformative effects from these kind of experiments? So there's, there's another, I think, really interesting chapter by Luis Carvalho and uh, Irina Lazzarini in the book on community choice aggregation in the United States. And broadly, these are buyers clubs where local communities, local um, governments um, get together and coordinate their purchase of green electricity. And the idea is that when, if you, if you tried in a market to, um, to sell green electricity to individuals, you would fail because creating the mass would, would take you far too long. And what happens here is that by creating suddenly aggregated demand across different communities, you're making it worthwhile for, for the providers of green electricity to, to come in. And this is, an this is an idea that emerged in the Midwest, in Ohio, in the, in, 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 the, in the 1990s. It migrated to California, where it's become a very kind of well-known and, and quite broad-scale development. And Cavallio argues it's now re-migrated back to the East Coast, so it's being taken up in New York and New Jersey and so on. And they plot this movement and each time it becomes more institutionalized, becomes more um, large scale, and and therefore as a market trigger, uh, it, it becomes more influential. So I think there are examples like this. On the other hand, I think a lot of the work, for instance, there's a very interesting chapter on, on these um, uh, climate experiments in India and trying to assess whether um, they had transformative or more incremental effects, and in India, then there's again a many, a many, many cases that are, 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 are looked at. Actually, most of the impacts that they had on on government policy and adoption of of, of new practices and technologies was pretty incremental. So it isn't true to say that an experimental approach always leads to more rapid adoption of highly novel approaches. That's not true. There are clearly other factors that will determine, you know, presumably to do with the institutional rigidities that exist uh, um, uh, to prevent uh, more, 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 more novel approaches to be adopted. Um, but again, I think these are, these are really interesting theoretical questions and they're, they're interesting you know, policy questions. How, how, what is the best design uh, of an experiment and, 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 and through seeing it in stages? Where, where gradually a thing can become extremely influential, often through mo being mobile and, and transferring through different stages, through different places. Yeah. I mean, listening to you talking about some of this stuff, it's quite um, inspiring, actually, the things that are being achieved. But at the same time, does this focus on experimentation, localism? Does it mean you are abandoning the idea of looking at global coordination, that we shouldn't now be focused at all on trying to get international level agreements? Or do you think there is still an important role for that in conjunction with this kind of more bottom-up sort of approach? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, yes, I, I think by stressing the importance of experiment 
capitalism in governance, uh, I, you, you, you don't get away from having some level of global coordination. But I think the global coordination is of a different type. So it is not necessarily about setting legally binding emissions targets for countries which are then uh, complied with. It is more to do with creating the conditions under which uh, you do set broad targets uh, as we have the two degree target, the one, one, 1.5 degree target, which implies certain kinds of uh, levels of emissions over time. Uh, and then what the international system is really all about is about um, stimulating innovation, connecting uh, uh, entrepreneurs and local initiatives and more less local initiatives and and somehow guiding those and providing resources and uh, uh, and connecting them with technology providers and 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 setting good examples. So I think the the, the UNFCCC, the the United Nations Framework Convention, um, based in Bonn, is now sponsoring all sorts of international uh, partnerships and linkages of the type that we discussed before C40 ICLEI to help you know farmers in, in sub-Saharan Af Africa maybe link with farmers in other tropical areas as they're thinking about um, uh, 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 biological fixation of carbon, for instance, uh, soil carbon. Um, and, and in this way, you, you create a sort of global movement of, of farmers at the local level who are adopting new techniques of analysing uh, what they're doing in different ways, perhaps you know, enabled by um, global information systems, satellites, and so on, uh, that allow agents on the ground to to act in a, in a in a radically new way. So, I think there's always going to be a requirement for global coordination, but what it's providing is is different than than what we assumed it would be providing in the past. It sounds almost as though part of that is trying to sustain some kind of identity for people. To be actually involved with the issue but the way in which they might actually be involved with it will vary depending on their local circumstances the context that sort of thing is that fair? absolutely and i think that you know because climate gets in in everywhere i mean it's partly to do with of course emissions reductions it's partly to do with adapting to to changes in climate itself you know um and uh everyone is is responding in their own way depending on you know what sector they're in, where they're living, uh, and the massive complexity of this requires um, an, an approach to change, an approach to learning, approach to innovation, um, which is connected and, 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 and can be fitted to the very specificity, and therefore is inspiring to people to get involved. So, so people also feel connected. I mean, I think the idea that we're all entirely atomized individuals mm. doing this for ourselves that's not not my experience and i don't think yeah. that's what these experiments demonstrate these experiments yeah. i think are a kind of unique combination of certainly people seeking benefits for themselves mm. but as part of a wider and connected um social economic policy movement uh, towards achieving these long-term goals which people feel affiliated and responsible for as well Perhaps we could pick up another on another element of the the interconnection there. So there's a good deal of emphasis throughout the book on the importance of interdisciplinary work in mm. social science. Um, so part of the complexity is that climate change is an issue that 
involves science, it involves questions of governance, mm-hmm. social organisation. Can you say a little bit more about the role that interdisciplinarity plays in this particular book? Why you think, why you assemble the kind of authors that you did who actually cover a diversity of, of, yeah. of fields? Well, I think, um, again, it stems from maybe my my own background and the sort of field that I come from, which is more, as I said, is more innovation studies. The work that we've been doing on system innovation, we realised you know, over the last 15, 20 years, requires us to work with um, economists, with historians of technology, with sociologists working on science and technology, science and technology studies, um, and probably also with you know people in who, who work on in political science and policy studies. So I think it's come natural to to that group of people that we need to collaborate in order to and, and, and listen to each other and, and develop new, more hybrid concepts uh, that allow us to understand in a more complete and systemic way. Um, systematic way what what is really happening with the aim of course also of influencing policy and, and people um, so I think we sought to um, apply a similar kind of ethic of collaboration to this and I'm a firm believer that um, we can all learn from each other across disciplinary divides if we listen hard and we try I mean we, you know, we'll never be experts in each other's subjects but we can try to import and use ideas and build on each other uh, the sort of insights that exist in, in different fields and it's only then that you have a, a properly comp- a, a, pro- a, a kind of a, a large enough conception which can begin to deal with the true complexity of the problems that we're we're dealing with I mean you know there's a, there's a sort of mirror image that the complexity of the problem you're dealing with requires a, a certain kind of complexity in the in the conceptual apparatus that you're that you're seeking to apply to understand that and uh, and I think yeah for me therefore it's, that that's that's pretty fundamental but everyone will have their different approaches mm. to that and everyone will come to it from their own perspective and there's no right way of doing it and interdisciplinarity is not at all an end in itself it's only because through doing it we can we can have better explanations of what we think is going on in the world. I mean, academics often talk about interdisciplinary work, but they're sometimes more reluctant to to practice it. And when you're dealing with a, um, I mean, sometimes people call climate change a wicked problem, which has got all these multiple dimensions, but actually getting people to talk across uh, the dimensions of that can be very challenging. Um, do you think that that is a serious challenge, or do you find, obviously, the people who've contributed to this book are interested in interdisciplinary approach? But do we have examples of the kind of networks of of academic actors that mirror those kind of on the ground networks of social actors who you've talked about yeah. generating these kind of experiments that are transforming the system? Yeah. Well, I think I think increasingly, certainly, you know, in 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 in, in my field of you know science technology studies, science technology innovation studies, um, you do get uh, the sort of groups of people that I was talking about coming together in in their in their journals and in their in their conferences and so on. Um, so there is, uh, you know, a, not just a tolerance for each other, but really an, an active listening and an active learning. I mean, in my own, in my, in my you know, I, 
I should explain maybe, I mean, my background, I, I, did a, I did a geography degree initially, but then I went off to do a PhD in science technology studies. And my first postdoctoral work was working with a physicist on, on nuclear weapons controls. And I had to work out how you know, a nuclear reactor works and be able to you know, calculate how much plutonium so was being produced there. So for me, you know, um, I, I, I've, I've never been terribly interested in a, a disciplinary boundary. I think you can travel across them. There are dangers, of course, and you'll never probably be viewed as, as, as one of us. Um, but I think it, it can lead to really interesting research careers. And I think um, more and more you know, young scholars are, are interested in, in trying to do something which is um, uh, you know, more synthetic, more hybrid, uh, because you get to, you know, interesting questions and maybe you get to interesting answers. Often you're going to have to collaborate with people from dis different disciplines. But again, there are plenty of people around who, who, are, who are keen to do that. And, um, uh, you know, as long as you're brave enough and continue trying to be interesting, then, um, then I think working in an interdisciplinary way is, is I think, likely likely to be more interesting but i'm just talking about my own my own experience there so what do you think is next for research in climate governance what for the moving beyond this book do you have plans for more work in this this field or do, can you point towards what the latest avenues of inquiry are yeah i mean i think i think this 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 general idea of um an experimental approach to climate governance is one that needs further work i would say and I think we've just begun to uh, uh, yeah, sketch out uh, uh, a, a field here, which is trying in a more, you know, theoretically robust way to talk about beyond experiments. So once you've got experiments and there's empirical evidence, there are thousands, as I say, hundreds of thousands of things going, things going on. How can we begin to think about their contributing at a global level uh, to achieving these global targets? And We've just scratched the surface with it, with this book, and but it is a fundamental question for international climate policy, and policymakers need to have a view about how the many initiatives they're doing at the at the grassroots how how they add up and how they'll be, you know, how they multiply each other, how they leverage each other, and how we'll be able to to, to achieve these because in the end, of course, these are global objectives we've got. So there's an awful lot more to do, I think, in this this area. I think we we have just begun to open up uh, an area of a field of work, and I hope we've sought a little bit conceptually here to clarify some of the some of the ideas in the background. And I think there's a lot more work to be done. I mean, isn't there a problem though, in a sense, that if there is this kind of diversity of experimentation going on out there, which is very dispersed, yeah. that in a sense, social scientists aren't necessarily well equipped to be able to oversee yeah. where all those experiments are taking place. Yeah. They are themselves are not complex enough to be able to uh, research the responses to the problem that are actually taking place. And that we're only going to get quite a partial picture of what is actually going on or the possibilities that there might be actually for change to take place. I think that's, you know, that, 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 that's probably right. Um, and maybe what we need is increasingly more 
you know, more, more, a more quantified approach here. So that, I mean, as, a, as I said earlier, a lot of the work has been very qualitative and dealing with single or small, small n numbers of cases. Uh, and actually, we need to develop um, a conceptual apparatus which will allow us uh, to begin to have oversight over and maybe the development of databases and so on, collecting information more systematically, uh, looking at the innovative potential and the real change that's being achieved uh, through these through these many initiatives that are, are, are there. So um, that may be one way in which we need to go. So I agree with you that this is a, a key methodological problem. I'm not sure I know exactly how to... Well, I, I had a slightly different take on it. So I was thinking more of if you think of the people who engage in these experiments, you, you could think of them as almost being action researchers yes. who are actually doing Yes. research on the ground and yes. what they are they are the social scientists who yes. are trying to come up with particular experiments and they might know more actually about the context than the people who are studying them and in a sense to focus too much on people studying these things is actually replicating the problem of centralized governance where the assumption is that someone out there actually can generate all the data in one place and tell us all what we ought to learn from it well, I think that's a very, I mean, that, that is right. I mean, the, the idea of living labs, for instance, which you, you see a lot of now, uh, is this idea of the, the, the empowered citizen or entrepreneur, or whoever it is, um, uh, who is actually the, the, the expert on, on, on the innovation and the change that's happening in, in their particular place. And, uh, and the researcher is a sort of enabler and, and guide, guider, but, but not, not really fundamental to this. I think that's probably right. On the other hand, um, you know, the person driving the living lab or whatever is, is also uh, 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 probably wanting to have wider contacts and relationships and understanding of how they're contributing to a wider set of systemic changes at a, you know, at a sort of global level. So I think you don't get away from this question of how you, how you link up, how you make sense of things that are happening uh, on the ground, uh, aggregated up, presumably, in complex and multifarious ways to some kind of global outcome, which, uh, you know, clearly, because this is, a, in the end, a global public good problem. Uh, you know, you don't get away from that, you know. Carbon dioxide, methane are mixed very rapidly in the atmosphere, and they generate uh, local climate out outcomes and global climate outcomes, uh, which we then all experience. So th there's no way of getting away from that, uh, uh, and it's a really fundamental and interesting question for social science and for you know global governance as well. How we how we think about achieving this in the future. Okay, well, there's a lot of food for thought there. Thanks very much, Franz, for talking to us today on the Governance Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Mark.